from the Center for the Study of Teaching and Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. My name is Ben McCorkle, and I'm guest hosting today. And uh, with me today is Stephen Berlin-Johnson, uh, who's considered one of today's foremost writers on science, technology, and media theory. His interests are pretty varied. They range from network theory to cognitive neuroscience, popular culture, the history of ideas, and drawing disparate, surprising connections among these various areas. His is a world populated by objects as disparate and fascinating as teeming ant hills, dirty drinking water, sentient computer software, coral reefs, and Kickstarter. He's a regular columnist for publications like the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and especially Wired magazine. He's a web entrepreneur. He's helped found or create a number of sites, including the online magazine Feed, the community news site Plastic.com, and more recently, the place-specific news aggregator Outside In. He's also a writer of numerous books, more than I have time to mention here, but uh, starting way back in 1997, Interface Culture, How New Technology Transforms the Way We Create and Communicate, Everything Bad is Good for You, How Today's Popular Culture is Actually Making Us Smarter from 2005. One of my favorites, The Ghost Map, Story of London's Most Terrifying Epidemic and How It Changed Science, Cities, and the Modern World from 2006. And the current book, uh, uh, the occasion for which we're talking about today, Future Perfect, The Case for Progress in a Networked Age. And in this book, uh, Johnson looks at what he calls the emerging peer progressive movement, a real-life network of people and resources organized in bottom-up fashion uh, that helps affect political and social change. Uh, truly, truly, this is an honor for me to talk to you. I've been following your work since the, the late 90s. Uh, so welcome. Welcome, Stephen Johnson. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, I, I guess we could start off, maybe you could give us the elevator pitch for the book. Great, <laughs> the elevator pitch. Um, well, basically, this is kind of my first book about politics. Um, all, a lot of my books have had these kind of lurking in the background. They've had these themes that might be applicable to our vision of how to make the world a better place and kind of our political worldviews. But I had a certain point, this is going to be a bad elevator pitch, but uh, <laughs> at a certain point... It's a long building. <laughs> where, yeah, it's a long ride. It's like an Empire State Building elevator pitch. Um, at a certain point where I looked around and I saw all these kind of projects and people and organizations around me that were working to improve the world in a in what I felt was a pretty novel way. And they all seemed to share a certain set of core values um, that I didn't think had been kind of properly understood or kind of classified. And those values really revolved around the, the importance of, of, of peer networks, of kind of decentralized, as you said, bottom-up um, networks of collaboration, often involving thousands of people, um, often involving a lot of kind of diversity in the perspectives and the <clears throat> fields of expertise that those people have and often working outside of traditional economic relationships. So, um, you know, working without traditional ownership over their intellectual ideas and creations and solutions. Um, so there's kind of a free exchange um, and circulation of those ideas where other people are free to kind of build on and improve ideas created elsewhere in, in the network. And, this all, you know, it, it sounds kind of utopian, right? It sounds like <laughs> I find on a commune somewhere in 1971. Um, but in fact, that peer network structure is the way that we built the internet. That's the way that we built the web. That's the way that we built Wikipedia. That's the way that we've built all the open source software that's in so many computers that we now use and are so dependent on. And so 
<clears throat> we can point to the success stories of those peer networks and say, this is not a fantasy, right? This is not some, uh, you know, grad school <laughs> experience <laughs> on, you know, uh, you know, utopian social thought. This is something that actually the modern world now depends on thanks to the success of these technologies. And then the, the idea that kind of animates the book and that animates so many of the projects and people that I write about in the book is that those peer network structures can be used to solve different kinds of problems, not just revolving around technology. And, and that's, and the book is kind of a, you know, a, an optimistic look at all these different experiments. Uh, great. One thing I like about the way you uh, uh, categorize or describe this peer progressive movement is that it kind of transcends traditional notions of like left and right politics or public and private in terms of, uh, you know, economic systems. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little more about that per- peer progressive movement. Like, who are they? How do you see them functioning throughout uh, the course of this book? Right. So, I mean, let, let me give you one example of how it works, which is um, Kickstarter. Right, so Kickstarter, an amazing success story in terms of using peer networks to solve the problem of uh, how do you, how do you fund creative work that is not yet supported by the marketplace? It's not yet supported by you know kind of commercial interest. So you're you're trying to finish your album, but you don't have a record label to support you yet, or you're trying to finish your book of poetry, but you don't have a publisher yet, or Whatever it is, in in the old days, if you were in that position, you, you would go to a big institution. You'd go to the National Endowment for the Arts in kind of the government sector. You'd go to a big philanthropic institution, the Duke Foundation or the MacArthur Foundation, that was created by you know super wealthy people. Um, what Kickstarter said is, wait, no, no, we we can use the network of just ordinary folks, peers, to solve this problem. People who might give five dollars, ten dollars, fifty dollars to support something without any traditional kind of economic return on their investment, right? People give them $50 for somebody's CD that hasn't even been made yet. That's not a traditional, <laughs> you know, economic transaction, right? Um, and again, it's one of these projects that sounds like, yeah, that's a lovely idea. It'll never work in practice. Well, Kickstarter is just, you know, a few years old and it's already on track to be bigger this year than the National Endowment for the Arts, right? That's how much of a success it is just, you know, three or four years after its founding. So, all of which is to say is Kickstarter is a case study of how it, it kind of complicates our traditional ideas of the, the two parties and the left and the right. Because on the one hand, it's it's not about a big government agency. It's not about a top-down solution. It's not about, you know, a, you know, a, a, a big bureaucracy that's trying to, you know, solve a problem in society. Um, on the other hand, it's not about really the market solving the problem either because all those contributions are coming really as a kind of a gift economy. People are giving away money for, you know, they can get little rewards for contributing, but it's not, it's not a traditional economic transaction. And that's, that's where the peer progressives lie. They're, they're not necessarily into big government. Um, and while they love decentralized systems, they're not traditional libertarians. They don't believe that the market solves all the problems in society. They believe instead of this other form of organization, the peer network. And that, if you believe that, you don't really have a natural home in, in either party. And so this, this book is trying to say, okay, we need, we need a space for these people because what they're working on is very, very interesting. Right. And having myself contributed to more than a few Kickstarter campaigns, I get the appeal. There, there's, there's something that, that feels like, you know, you're uh, directly uh, enacting uh, some sort of, 
public power or something that that actually brings products into into the world, and uh, you know, which is a very different kind of feeling than just say casting a vote. Uh, not not to you know dismiss that altogether, but but it, it has a very different kind of character and different ethos. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I mean, you know, it gets a little bit also to the question of why do people contribute to Wikipedia? You know, I mean, here you have this huge thing that is entirely fueled by people's you know, free donations of their intellectual labor. And I think part of it is this idea that, you know, you, um, you know, you, you show up on this entry for something you're an expert in and you, and you improve it a little bit. And the satisfaction of kind of seeing your words, even if they're barely kind of credited, you have to, f- to find out who actually changed that sentence. You have to kind of dig through Wikipedia to actually get attribution. But, you know, this the satisfaction of like, I made that entry on Charles Dickens a little bit better. Um, is is far more motivating than we ever thought um, until until Wikipedia was built, and I think the same thing is true of Kickstarter. And you know, a big area where I think all of this is is really flourishing already um, is in 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 local in in kind of neighborhoods and communities. Um, and there, you have that exact same feeling. You have all these organizations that are out there that are allowing people to kind of identify problems or opportunities in their neighborhoods and and propose solutions. And that feeling of like, oh, you know what? There was a pothole on my street, and because now I have tools that enable me to let the city know that there's a pothole on the street, um, it was fixed, and my street is now better. You know, <laughs> results right there that you can see. And when people get in that positive feedback loop of like, if I get engaged, and if I contribute to your network in my neighborhood, my life will be improved. You know, that, that is a whole different relationship to kind of civic culture than we're accustomed to. Instead of just being like, well, like, if I vote, you know, one of these jerks is going to get elected. <laughs> <laughs> and it won't make any difference. And I won't see the results. And three years later, I'll be back voting for another jerk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> so cynical. Uh, um, just talking to you this, uh, this you know, brief period, uh, it, it, it really comes to light um, – how your brain works. You go into a lot of disparate, seemingly unrelated territory with you, and really in all your work, uh, and certainly in Future Perfect is no exception. You you draw on all these uh, uh, seemingly far afield examples: the Miracle on the Hudson, Occupy Wall Street movements, uh, Kickstarter, the the so called maple syrup events in Manhattan. Uh, I'm curious as what you think leads you to think of these surprising connections. Is it is it your training, or are you just a product of the associative hypertextual age? Uh, are, are you? Uh, are you a unique unicorn of uh, of intellectual <laughs> endeavor? I mean, what 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 drives you? I'll take unicorn. <laughs> oh, um, I you know a little bit of all those except for unicorn. I I um uh I don't know. I've always been I, kind of philosophically, um, and indeed this is part of the argument of of really the last two books um, that w- w- we're smarter. When, when we're able to make connections across disciplines, um, it's a big driver of innovation in, in human history is taking an idea or a tool or a concept from one field and kind of porting it over and putting it to use in another field. That often unlocks new possibilities. So it's, um, it's a very productive way of, of kind of looking at the world. And we, we have a tendency to kind of specialize in society for understandable reasons. And, you know, you get to be an expert in one field and then you kind of forget about the other fields. And so, 
uh, you know, I've always tried to write in a mode where, you know, the, the kind of the power of cross-disciplinary connection was as important as specialization or, or maybe even more so just to kind of counteract that tendency in, in society. The the web has helped that in in making my brain maybe more like that, but it's really helped in the sense that it's so much easier to do the research now. Um, I actually, you know, there's a, if folks are interested, I wrote a little blog post a, a few months ago as I was finishing this book about how I got to one of the kind of core ideas in the book, this opposition between the Legrand star and the Baron web, which we don't have time to get into, but, uh, and I just kind of traced the, the path of research that got me to this concept. And it, it was this kind of crazy mix of I was something on Twitter that somebody said pointed me to a book which happened to connect to this other uh, – sent me off in, on this research thing into the history of the French railway system where I found these PDFs of scholarly articles. And then that reminded me of a conversation I'd had many years ago that connected. But a lot of it was pulling down documents that would have taken, you know – three or four days to get to, if not longer, uh, between bookstores and, and library stacks that I was able to assemble literally in, you know, 10 minutes. And so just the ability to kind of follow a hunch and show up with, you know, a full reading list in, in 10 minutes is, a, is just a huge accelerator of your ability to make those connections. And, and this was actually a, a question uh, that, that, uh, I'd anticipated um, bringing up a little later, but uh, this is a perfect segue. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your process as a writer, uh, particularly as it involves uh, use of technology. I remember reading, uh, I believe on your blog, even even prior to what you just mentioned, uh, you're in the habit of using um, outline or note-taking software like Evernote or DevonThink and and things of that nature. Can can you talk a little more about your approach as a writer? Uh, uh, you know, I, I imagine it's not just all um, helter kelter, scrambly. Here's a here's a cat. Here's a cat. Here's a cat. But but instead, you you probably have developed an organic method along the way. I'm imagining. Yeah, I have, I have, and it's kind of a mix of actual tools and just kind of approaches. So I've used a one of the big things I've been I've been collecting little clips of quotes from books that I've been reading in my research that I've kind of captured on my computer and stored digitally. I mean, I started doing this in 1994 when I was in grad school, you know, which was very hard to do back then. You had to kind of transcribe it by hand. Now, of course, with eBooks, you can actually kind of select text on the Kindle and it will make it over to your computer. Although it's too complicated, it should be easier to do it. (laughs) Um, but, uh, and then I've used various tools to kind of store those quotes. So I have thousands of quotes from books that I've read over the years. And then I've used in the past tools like Think, which is an amazing tool. And, and now I use this thing, Findings, which I helped um, build, actually, because I wanted to have a tool that was kind of custom-tailored to my work patterns. Um, and they all allow you actually to make these kind of subtle connections between little clips. So you can say, hey, here's this one passage from this Jane Jacobs book. Show me other passages from the thousands of quotes that I have that are related to this. And I use that sometimes to just kind of come up with new connections and, and make new associations. It's almost an extension of my memory. Um, and then, I, you know, I have a lot of little techniques. One of my big things is um, I don't reread books as I'm writing them. So I'll sit down, I try and write, you know, 500 words a day when I'm in the middle of a book. And there's this tendency a lot of writers have, which is to go back and reread the you know, the entire chapter that you've been working on before you start writing each day. And that has two kind of damaging effects, one of which is 
that it slows you down because <laughs> you have to spend all this time reading every morning. But secondly, it means that by the time you're done with the book, you have read the book, you know, dozens and dozens of times. Right. right. And it's, it inevitably gets really boring and kind of obvious to your brain. You just, it's like a song you've listened to too many times and you can't tell what's good or not. It all seems really lame basically when you read your book. <laughs> and so what I try and do is, you know, in the morning and I just read back, you know, a paragraph or so just to remind myself where I am. And then I just charge ahead and write my next thing. And at the end of a chapter, I will actually sit down and do one pass edit of that chapter and you know, improve it a little bit. And then I put it away and I do not look at it until the book is done. And the the funny thing that happens with that is that I, I end up having whole passages that I've completely forgotten about. Some cases, whole passages that I've rewritten word for word, you know, kind of in two different places. Wow. <laughs> uh, so but it means that I can read the whole thing with completely fresh eyes. Like I read it as if I'm, you know, an outside reader, not the person who wrote it in the first place. And it, it just gives me a much better sense of what's working, what's flowing, what's confusing, what's boring, what's repetitive, and so on. So, and it means that I can write faster because I'm not spending all that time rereading. Oh, great. I, I, I'm sure this is going to be fascinating stuff for our audience in particular. I'm wondering also about how your method might even spill beyond your conscious uh, activities of writing, like the, the, these stories of network civic engagement that you talk about in Future Perfect. Uh, these seem to look a lot like the kinds of engagement that you're trying to support in your online ventures with sites like Plastic.com or Outside In. Uh, and I'm wondering if you could talk about the connections you see there. Yeah, I've always I've had this weird career where I bounce back and forth between doing books and then doing startups. Um, I'm trying to enter into a new mode where I don't actually start things on my own and I just kind of advise, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> which I, I'm doing right now with this thing Medium that was been created by the guys who started Twitter uh, or a couple of the guys, Evan Williams and Biz Stone, and uh, they're out here in the Bay Area, and so I've been coming by there and helping them think about their product a little bit, just chipping in a little bit because it's exhausting doing a startup and it, it really restricts your freedom. Sure. <laughs> uh, and so, um, but I've always enjoyed kind of, you know, writing books and then making things. And the books have always had an interesting way of informing. I mean, ghost map, which you mentioned before the idea for that came, uh, the idea for outside in, which is about kind of neighborhoods mm-hmm. Uh, and maps came out of writing Ghost Map. I was writing a book about 19th century London and the power of communities and local experts in that neighborhood. Um, and it connected with what I was experiencing when I was living in Brooklyn at that point. And so somehow a book about cholera in the 19th century triggered a web startup. Um, of course. <laughs> uh, that's just, but it, you know, it's nice to bounce back and forth. Writing is generally a pretty, you know, kind of solitary. Uh, enterprise unless you're on book tour as I am now um, and doing building a company or building a tool with a bunch of interesting people is this beautifully collaborative thing so it's it's nice to go back and forth between those different worlds um, so since Future Perfect has come out uh, a, a rather high profile political campaign has been unfolding in front of us uh, what, what do you think this uh, um what this does to the peer progressive movement, uh, like in the short term, do you, do you think it sucks the energy out of it? Do you see uh, new emergent uh, practices coming about or, or, uh, or what? Uh, you know, it's been nice. I've seen a couple of tweets during each of the debates of people 
who effectively said, you know, I'm watching this debate, but I keep thinking about Stephen Johnson's book and how it would be so great to have, you know, real peer progressive values being talked about. And I've only seen a few tweets like that, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but they're, and they weren't like written by my relatives. So, uh, uh, we're making some progress, but you know, it's, uh, that, you know, some of these values are there, you know, the, the there have been a bunch of things, some of which I write about in the book that the Obama administration has done, the the way they've used uh, prize back challenges, um, some of the things they did with education, the open gov um, initiatives are, are very much aligned with pure progressive values. Um, so, but they haven't kind of framed them philosophically uh, maybe because it's too hard to do that in a national political campaign. But um I think this is the kind of thing, you know, this is a book in a funny way about something that hasn't fully happened yet, um, just which is a fun mode to write in. But it means we have to be a little patient, too, and not expect it to jump into the middle of a presidential debate. Um, this is this is going to be a more of a slow burn, I think. <laughs> um, you have been fairly prolific uh, in terms of like book length projects. Uh, so my guess is that you're probably already thinking ahead uh, to your next project. Uh, so, uh, or maybe you're not. Maybe this is a, an anxiety inducing question. But what are you working on next? No, it's always good. I, you know, again, for the diversity point, it's always good. To, I like to have two or three projects to find at any given time because you have a lot of downtime with the book. You know, you finish a draft and you have to wait three weeks and it's kind of good to be able to turn to something else. And there's often kind of interactions between the book you're writing and the book that's coming next in your mind. Um, that's always been true for me. The, the next thing though that I'm really focused on, which I can't really say that much about, but um, it's going to be big, I think, and it's going to happen next year and it's going to be involving television. So uh, imagine these big, diverse, connected, weird books adapted for tv um and you get some idea of what's what's in the works it's, it's cool. intriguing <laughs> breaking news <laughs> we've uh doug have we ever broke news on this program before? <laughs> all, the <time>. all the time <laughs> he says but but this but this is big uh well uh stephen johnson thank you so much uh, for sitting and talking with us it's been a real treat for me personally I enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun for me, too. All right. Great. Thank you. Thank you.